Good morning. Those of you who know me know that I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, just down the road from where Billy Graham grew up, and that he and his Billy Graham organization and Leighton Ford, his right-hand man, were some of the people who really mentored me, and I would not be here today without them. So this is for you, Billy. For all the saints who from their labors rest, who thee by faith before the world confessed, thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. Alleluia, alleluia. The service was planned long before we knew that Billy had gone to glory. But this was his favorite text, so it's a Holy Spirit thing. One of my colleagues for many years here at Asbury was a professor of storytelling and homiletics. His name was Chuck Killian. He grew up in Indiana in Wesleyan and Nazarene contexts in which every summer there would be revivals. And as a teenager struggling with the usual temptations of teenagers, he tells a story of how he repeatedly would go to the altar rail and repent. And his comment about all those teenage experiences was, I was born again, and again, and again, and again. I was born again so many times I had stretch marks on my soul. <laughs> what is John 3 really talking about? Is it talking about having a certain kind of born-again experience, such that if, if you've not had that experience, well, then you're not a full-fledged, spirit-filled Christian. Whereas the lady once said, and, oh, brother, what art, where art thou? You ain't bona fide. Or, alternatively, is the passage about what happens to a person when they are water-baptized and therefore receive the Holy Spirit? Or have we been ever translating this famous passage correctly? Inquiring minds want to know. Those of you who know me well know I like to say a text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. So we're going to dig in this morning, and I have four major things I want to say to you about this all-too-familiar text. First thing. Jesus is not having a nice little discussion about Christian baptism with Nicodemus, a pious Jewish teacher of his day who admired Jesus. Think about it for a minute. There are no Christians yet when Jesus had his discussion with Nick at night. There are no great commissions yet. There are no Christian sacraments or practices yet. What sense could it possibly have made in that context for Jesus to talk well in advance of those things about a sort of ritual practice that was of no relevance to the specific time when Jesus and Nicodemus had their meeting? Especially when we learn in this very same chapter, John 4, uh, the next chapter, John 4, 2, that it was his cousin's job to do baptizing. Jesus didn't baptize anybody. In fact, this passage in John 3 has nothing at all to do with water baptism 
or water rituals of any kind. The word water was used in early Judaism metaphorically and euphemistically to refer to a variety of things that relate to the process of creating a human life. Male semen was called water in early Judaism. The amniotic fluid in a womb of a pregnant woman was called water. And even today, we talk about the breaking of the waters as the time arrives for the baby to be born. If you look carefully at the Greek of John 3, Jesus speaks of birth out of water, ek hudatos, and birth out of spirit. Jesus is not talking about a single experience that involves both water and spirit. He's talking about two parallel experiences as the very next verse makes ultra clear. Jesus exegetes his saying about water and spirit by saying, flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit. Birth out of water is the physical first birth. Birth out of spirit is the second birth. An analogy is being drawn between physical birth and spiritual rebirth. One of the things that complicates the picture is that the Greek word anothen can be translated either again or from above. Is Jesus talking about being born again? and so a second birth, or is he talking about being born from above, i.e. from God, or maybe both? I would say both. But clearly, Nicodemus understands Jesus to be talking about a second birth. In essence, he says, I can't crawl back into my mother's womb and call for womb service, can I? I can't be born a second time physically, can I? This is so typical of the Johannine presentation of the gospel. The people that Jesus dialogues with are thinking at one mundane level, and he's talking at about a different, higher spiritual level. Jesus and Nicodemus are not connecting on this subject. This new birth, this spiritual birth, is not subject to human causation or manipulation. It is a birth from God. More particularly, it is a birth through the agency of the Holy Spirit. And nothing at all is said in John 3 about what kind of experience the reborn person has a result of. Jesus is not talking about feelings, Nothing more than feelings. He's not talking about our reaction to the experience. He's talking about the work of God in the life of the individual. It's God who does the rebirthing, not us. Second point, if you are perhaps wondering why Nicodemus is so nonplussed by what Jesus says, you need to bear in mind at least two things. Number one, most ancient peoples didn't believe in the concept of a radical transformation of a person, a radical conversion, a radical being born anew in antiquity. They had sayings like, can a leopard change its spots? 
I once had a student who was uh, Animal Kingdom challenged. He got up in the pulpit and said, can a leopard change his stripes? And I went, you need to talk to my wife about animal husbandry. The answer is no. We have a saying like that too. You can't teach old dogs. You see, people in antiquity and many people today did not believe in fundamental change. They did not believe people could change at all. I was talking to an extremely well-educated PhD counselor from Duke in Atlanta one day. I asked her if she believed in the concept that people could really change, dramatically change their lives. She said, no, we in the profession believe in therapy, the ameliorating of tendencies and cognitive distortions to help people change their behavior, but we don't really believe in miraculous change in people's personalities or habits or behaviors or thought patterns. We believe only in ameliorating the difficulties. If I didn't believe in God's grace and that it could miraculously change people, I would have gotten out of the ministry a long time ago. Second thing, the other reason Nicodemus is shocked by what Jesus says is that of course he is a good, pious Jewish teacher indeed Jesus even calls him a great teacher in Israel. He's got the Sunday school pins right down here, perfect attendance. He knows the Torah upside down and backwards. Why would he need a U-turn in his life? Why would he need to be born again? He believed already wholeheartedly in Yahweh, the God of the Bible. He's not a hypocrite. Nevertheless, it is to him that Jesus says, whatever you are, whoever you are, whatever's been true before, if you want to see, never mind, enter the kingdom of God when it comes fully on earth, then right here, right now, in this life, you must be born again. You must be born of God. But again, what does that even mean? and entail and imply. Jesus, piling one metaphor on another, explains that the work of the Spirit is invisible. It's like the work of the wind. And here again, Jesus is involved in sapiential or wisdom-like wordplay. You see, both the Hebrew word ruach and in Greek pneuma have three meanings, breath, wind, and spirit. And so Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh, and spirit, the breath of God, gives birth to spirit, breath, conjuring up the image of the first creation of the first human, Adam, when God breathed into him out of, and made a man out of dust from the earth. Jesus says, the work of the spirit is invisible, like the wind. But you can recognize the Spirit is at work by the Spirit's effects. You see the thing, the persons, it alters. You see the way it changes persons. You see that they are born again. The Spirit is the change agent. Third thing, 
If we could take the time to look at the most famous conversion narrative in the New Testament, the one in Acts 9, 22, and 26, the story of Saul of Tarsus making a U-turn on Damascus Road, what would we learn? Well, the first thing we would learn is that the change in his life was not instantaneous. Saul was blinded on the road, taken to Damascus, and Acts 9.9 says he was without sight or real help for three days. Then Ananias comes. Then Ananias lays hands on him. Then he receives back at least some of his vision. He arises and he is baptized. There was an event that led to a process which day, days later culminated in a baptism and a commitment. This story, which is told in triplicate in Acts, presumably to emphasize it was one of the most important events in early Christianity, tells us that even the most dramatic of conversions involves not just an event, but a process. One of the most famous circuit riders in this whole area in the 19th century was Richmond Nolly from Indiana. And he was attending at the Cane Ridge Revival, but not as a preacher, not even as a Christian, but just simply out of curiosity. He said he came to see the multitudes and lots of things were going on at the Cane Ridge Revival. Maybe even 100,000 people showed up at the beginning of the 19th century. And he heard some vital preaching from some of the circuit rider preachers and it began to take root in him. But he got afraid. He didn't want to hear the rest. He didn't want to change his life. He got back on his horse and headed back north to Indiana to cross the Ohio and get back home. But before he could get there, God so convicted him by the power of the Spirit several days later that he became perfectly miserable, got off his horse, kneeled in the woods, and prayed, God, if this is from you, then change my life and I will serve you the rest of my days. It took days for him to be born again. It was a long labor process, but that's not uncommon. Maybe I can extend the metaphor this way. Some women's labors are long and complicated when they're about to give birth, and some are much less so. I was riding on a train from Luxor to uh, Aswan, and I looked over on the right-hand side as the train had slowed down because there were repairs on the track, and here was a woman, great with child, picking bananas from banana palms. And as I watched, suddenly she was quickened. Her water broke. She went off behind a couple of trees where I couldn't see her, and she gave birth to the child in about five minutes flat, Somebody came, like a midwife, and cut the cord, and she went back to picking bananas about five minutes after that. And I went, wow, I have never met a woman like that in America. She was tough. I was impressed. Sometimes the labor can be long. Sometimes it can be short. Sometimes it can be involving a C-section. Sometimes not. Jesus is not talking about a certain kind of born-again experience. 
He's talking about the action of God which produces a certain outcome, whether it happens suddenly or slowly, dramatically or quietly, with or without goosebumps. Consider C.S. Lewis, another of my spiritual heroes, who says that on the day when the hound of heaven finally cornered him and he gave in, he says this, on that day, I was the most reluctant convert in all of Christendom. This does not sound like, I've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb, I've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. You know, it doesn't sound like that at all. It sounds like uncle. I say uncle, whether fast or slow, for, whether dramatic or quiet, whether with or without heavenly choir singing in the background, whether with or without an altar rail, we all must be born again, born of God. It's not about the length of the process. It's not about how dramatic it was. It's not whether it produces all sorts of exhilaration or bursting into song. It's about the final product. In the end, it doesn't matter how long it takes you to wade across Jordan. The only question is, have you reached the other side? Are you indeed born again? Do you know you've crossed over Jordan? Has God regenerated you through the Spirit of God and in the name of his Son? It doesn't matter whether the change came quietly, quickly, or suddenly and dramatically, or somewhere in between. What matters is that all God's children must change because they've all sinned and lack the glory of God. Remember what Paul says, no one can genuinely say Jesus is the risen Lord except by the internal prompting of the Holy Spirit. I had to preach a revival down in Garrett County, although in North Carolina we would have called that Gerard County, um, and it was the weekend after 9-11 back in 2001. And it was a little country church. One of my students was pastoring this church. And there was a really ancient man there with one of these gigantic old video cams videoing the whole thing. And he was just bursting with enthusiasm and joy and life. I came to find out from my student, D that he had been the town Lothario and drunk and that Dee had reached him for Christ at age 70-something by going jogging with him on early morning runs when the old man was trying to work off his bender from the night before and led him to Christ. But here's the catch. Even though 9-11 had shook up a lot of those people and they were turning to God and asking for change, they, many of them, were very skeptical that this man had even changed. They were saying things like, you can't teach old dogs new tricks. He's just sort of taken in our young, inexperienced pastor. I don't think so. God doesn't make cynical saints. He gives joy in your religion. And this man seemed to me the genuine artifact to me. Whether young or old, we must all be born again. So what about that famous overused verse, John 3, 16? 
we need to look at this verse in context. In the first place, it's a continuation of at least the final clause of John 3.15, which says this, all those believing in him shall have everlasting life. And could we stop translating that eternal life? Properly speaking, only God has eternal life, a life that always was, a life that is now, a life that will continue on into positive eternity. We don't have that. What we get is everlasting life beginning when we are born again, a life that continues forever into positive eternity. So let's call it everlasting life, shall we? Then, in John 3.16, we have a sentence that begins with both hutos and gar. This is your Greek lesson for this morning. Gar, of course, just means for. But here is where I'm pleading with you to see that the word hutos does not mean so. It never meant so. That is so wrong. <laughs> the Greek says this, for God loved the world thusly. For God loved the world in this manner. For God loved the world as follows. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The emphasis is not on the depth or profundity of God's love. The emphasis is on how he came to fix the human malaise by sending his son. It reads, for God loved the world in this manner that he gave his unique son in order that all those believing previously mentioned in 315b, should not be lost, should not perish, should not be destroyed, but rather have everlasting life. Because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but rather to save the world through him. Here's a few more key points. The word cosmos, which we get, from which we get the word, wait for it, cosmos, actually doesn't mean billions and billions of stars in the Bible. It means the world of humanity. And if you're a careful reader of the Gospel of John, it means the world of humanity organized against God, the world of fallen humanity. God so loved the fallen world. God loved the fallen world that he decided to send his unique son to change all that so that every one of us, potentially, could be born again. And uh, this gospel stresses that Jesus died for the world, not for the elect. Sorry, John Calvin. He died for the world. He died to save all y'all, and me too. But of course, what these verses also wonderfully imply is that we are lost. Even the best of us are lost. Even Nicodemus was not merely bewildered, bewitched, or bothered. He was lost. In short, we all need to be saved. Of course, telling somebody that they need to be saved hurts their pride. I was having a chat with one of my good Jewish friends, 
And she was going on and on about, we don't need that message as Jews. We don't need to be rescued or saved by Jesus. We believe in the Torah. We're following Moses' law. We believe in Yahweh with our whole heart. We're doing just fine as we are. We Jews do not believe in original sin, so we don't think we're lost. Had Jesus been there then, he would have said the same thing to her that he said to Nicodemus. Even so, even so, you must be born again. The sad truth is this. We have all sinned and lacked the glory of God. And whether slow or fast, whether dramatic or quiet, if we have any desire at all to see Jesus face to face, if we have any desire at all to hear him say when he returns, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my kingdom. Then as the British would say, QED, we must be born again. But as the fourth gospel makes abundantly clear, this is not a human self help program. This is not five easy steps you can personally take so you can experience rebirth. No, this is birth from God alone. <coughs> birth that can be produced by God's grace alone. You can neither work your way into this, nor worm your way into this, nor learn your way into this. You can only receive it by grace, through faith. God, you see, doesn't have any grandchildren. He has only children. And that's why you must be born again. Your parents' faith, however real, cannot save you. Your spouse's faith cannot save you. Your seminary grades, thanks be to God, cannot save you. <coughs> You cannot get to the door of the kingdom and say, I'm with him, and get in. It's not happening. You must be born again. And all God's children said, amen. <laughs>